Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to tonight's uh, lecture. This is the first public lecture of the school's contemporary Turkish program, and it comes after the European Institute has established a new endowed chair on Turkey. And of course, this endowed chair was made possible by the generosity of a number of public and private sector donors in Turkey, and we're very grateful to them. The establishment of the chair is an important development for the school and indeed for the European Institute in which it's located. It greatly reinforces the expertise we have on the region and the region's relationship with the European Union. It allows us to compare the experiences of economic development and political transition between Turkey and its neighbours. It also allows us to connect with the wider themes of the European Institute, questions of the European identity, the impact of the European Union, and the political economy of domestic strategies. We are delighted that Shevkut Pamuk has accepted our invitation to be Professorial Research Fellow on Turkey, and tonight is his inaugural lecture here at the school. Professor Pamuk has published extensively on Turkish economic history, on economic growth in the Balkans and in the, and in the Middle East. His expertise, therefore, connects to a number of interests across the school. He has an international reputation for his scholarship in these areas, and he's a member of various international research groups and networks. Professor Pamuk has wide international experience in other respects. For example, he's taught at Princeton, Michigan, and Arbor, and Northwestern universities in the United States. Tonight, he's chosen an important topic for Turkey, one that straddles matters of contemporary politics as well as economic history. And he's very well placed to speak on such a topic. Professor Pamuk has just arrived at the school, uh, but may I say he already seems to fit in very, very well. As is normal on these occasions, Professor Pamuk will begin with his lecture, and then there will be ample time for questions and answers from you, the audience, uh, later. Let me finish on a personal note. The establishment of the Turkish chair was something which uh, I was very, very pleased to see happen. The LSE is the first university institution in the UK, indeed in Europe, to have two endowed chairs, one on Turkey and one on Greece, in the same institution, both in the social sciences. We are very pleased about the possibilities that this uh, presents to us, for the study of Southeast Europe. We uh, plan to build around the two chairs to uh, strengthen our expertise on the region. So uh, you can see that from a very personal point of view, uh, I'm delighted to be able to say on this occasion, please welcome our first professor of contemporary Turkish studies, Shevkut Pamuk. Thank you very much, Kevin, for this kind introduction. Good evening. 
I would like to thank all of you for coming. Um, I will start as soon as I could get my PowerPoint started here. Ah, okay. Very good. I am very pleased that we were able to begin earlier this month the activities of the new LSE chair on contemporary Turkish studies. I sincerely hope these activities will further enrich the exciting events and programs both at the European Institute and more generally at LSE. As an economist and an economic historian, I thought I would adopt a long-term perspective this evening and discuss with you what I think of as one of the most important economic and social developments in Turkey in recent decades. The Justice and Development Party, or AKP, as it is known by its Turkish initials, has been in power in Turkey since the elections of 2002. This party with Islamist origins has been following moderate policies and remarkably has done more for European integration of Turkey than any other Turkish government. In the national elections last summer, they won a second term by receiving 47% of the vote. By this time, they are placed firmly at the center of the Turkish political spectrum. It seems to me very important to understand AKP and why they have been successful. Undoubtedly, there are many causes for their electoral success. Amongst the economic issues, the strong recovery since the crisis of 2001 has been emphasized. But another development that has not been sufficiently recognized is the recent rise of new industrial centers across the Anatolian heartland. This is ultimately a development related to globalization and the export-oriented industrialization in Turkey since the 1980s. I intend to link this evening the electoral success of AKP to export-oriented industrialization and the growing outward orientation of Turkey. I will also point to the rise of a new middle class during this process. I will argue this new class has been very influential in the transformation and moderation of AKP and its success at the ballot box. Industrialization in Turkey made considerable progress during the 1960s and 70s. It had a number of important shortcomings, however. It depended strongly on government support and it remained inward-oriented. Exports of manufacturers remained very low through the 1970s. Geographically, this industry remained concentrated in the Istanbul region and more generally in northwest corner of Turkey. The industrial elites of that era remained strongly dependent on government seeking subsidies and tariff protection. 
They were also opposed to economic integration with Europe for fear that they would not be able to compete with the products of European industry. The severe economic crisis at the end of the 1970s made clear that these policies could not be sustained. In 1980, Turkey began to bring its economic policies more in line with the realities and demands of the emerging era of globalization, with the adoption of liberal economic policies under Turgut Özal, who would later become prime minister and then president. The most successful aspect of Özal's economic policies was the drive for exports. Here I have a, a simple graph of the rise of exports in Turkey over the last half century. You can see that exports, Turkey's exports in current U.S. dollars really remained very, very low until 1980. As late as 1980, value of exports was less than $3 billion. Then you see a steady rise, and uh, this rise accelerated in the last decades. And in 2007, the value of Turkey's exports exceeded $100 billion. Well, you can see this is a, a very sharp increase. Admittedly, part of this is due to the decline in the value of the dollar. That is only a small fraction of what happened. In fact, this graph reflects a major increase in the volume of exports. Of course, a better indicator of the growing importance of exports would be to compare them with the size of Turkey's GDP or the size of its economy. In fact, the, this, other, this ratio, exports over GDP, is considered by economists as the most simple and most basic measure of an economy's outward orientation. You can see in this graph exports as a percentage of GDP. And again, exports as a percentage of GDP remained very, very low until 1980. Notice Turkey was exporting only 3% of its GDP, of its economy, of its, let's say, its production, as late as 1979. This is a sign, a very striking sign of how inward-oriented Turkish economy, in many ways, Turkish society was until 1980. And what you see is a very dramatic expansion of the share of export, of the, this ratio, the, the volume of exports as a percentage of GDP. So by the uh, most recent years, now this ratio has exceeded 20%. Another Part, and in another important part of the rise of exports is the composition of exports. In the earlier period, 
any school boy or school girl would tell you that Turkey exported mostly agricultural goods, what is was called, used to call to be called traditional exports. And um, in the 1970s, there were some addition of manufacturers to this list, but again, as late as uh, 1980, share of manufacturers in total exports was still about one-third, certainly below 40%. Then follows in the 1980s and later, again, a very dramatic rise, and by uh, the last decade or even two decades, you can see that share of manufacturers in Turkey's total exports is now, exceed, first exceed 80%, it's now about 95%. So you can see on, from this, when you combine this one with the previous graph, you can see that exports increased dramatically, plus most of this increase has been in manufacturers. Incidentally, uh, Turkey is not unique in this regard. Um, most developing countries since the 1980s have been experiencing, again, a dramatic rise in uh, the exports of manufacturers, and perhaps many of them, many of them, and you know the more successful cases, experience something of this sort. Perhaps not as dramatic, perhaps some of the more successful developing countries already had a high share of manufacturers in their exports in the 1960s, 1970s. Okay. Turkey was certainly a lagging in this respect, but uh, we see a dramatic rise in the share of exports. The other um, thing about this, the rise in exports that I would like to point out is the share of the European Union in this picture. Share of EU in Turkey's exports has remained high throughout this period. Um, the EU 15 had a share of around 50% in Turkey's exports in the earlier period. This is when exports really were small. And then there is this, uh, this decline, and this is, this is in the early 1980s, and it is basically due to the sharp rise in Turkey's exports to the Middle East during the Iran-Iraq war. There was a, that was a temporary development, but then the share of EU recovers, and it has remained about 50% during the last half century. <clears throat> you, may, you may wonder, well, has a European why hasn't European integration led to an even higher increasing share? Well, it turns out that, of course, a growing share of intra-Europe trade is not necessarily a good or desirable thing because that also suggests that Europe is in fact turning inward and doing more of its trade in rather than with the rest of the world. I've checked some of the other, most of the other European countries and uh, you find that for some European countries share of EU in total exports is in fact declining as these countries are increasing their trade with the other countries. For some, 
most notably the new members, of course, EU trade share is rising. So Turkey falls really in the middle of this spectrum. And uh, I was also intrigued by this, the, the stability of the Turkish share, but that would place Turkey right about uh, in the middle. And uh, <coughs> the uh, Turkey's uh, customs union arrangement with EU occurred right here in 1995. Since then, uh, Turkey and the, uh, Europe does not have any tariff barriers in the <coughs> non-agricultural goods. Okay. Now I would like to talk a little bit about the uh, industrial pattern behind the, the rise in exports. The, the increase in exports of manufacturers since 1980 did not all take place in the Istanbul area, in what is still the most industrialized north, northwest region of the country. You see here the leading industrial districts or provinces of Turkey as they were in the 1960s and 1970s. A concentration here in the northwest corner of the country plus Izmir, Ankara, basically because it's a large metropolitan area, and also Adana. The expansion of exports in recent decades was accompanied by the rise of new industrial centers across Anatolia in Gaziantep, Denizli, Eskişehir, Kayseri, Malatya, Kahramanmaraş, Konya, Edirne, and other cities. And here you see the new industrial centers. The shares of these provinces in Turkey's total manufacturing employment and manufacturing output, as well as manufacturing exports, has been rising rapidly. In some instances, in a few of the dramatic cases like Gaziantep, Kayseri, <coughs> Denizli, share of these provinces in total manufacturing employment and output have doubled in the last two decades. Now I'd like to talk a little bit more about uh, the emerging pattern in these new industrial districts. The industrial enterprises in these emerging centers are mostly small to medium-sized family firms with limited capital. They are mostly family enterprises employing few professional managers. They began production in the low technology and labor-intensive industries in textiles and clothing, food processing, metal industries, wood products, furniture, and chemicals. From the early stages, they have taken advantage of the low wages to produce for the export markets. They have been employing workers with little or no social security or health benefits. Low technology, the emphasis on labor-intensive industries, and low wages are all reflected in the productivity levels. 
Studies show that labor productivity in manufacturing in these new districts have been below the averages of not only for, of the more established industrial areas, such as the Istanbul region, but also below the averages for the country as a whole. In other words, these new industrial districts have been exploiting their advantage in, the, in low wages and have been pushing themselves in that direction. These uh, small and medium-sized enterprises in these districts have relied mostly on their own capital and informal networks. They do not borrow from banks, but tended to grow primarily through the reinvestment of profits, which perhaps explains their resilience in the face of the recurring boom and bust cycles in Turkey during the 1990s. It's also worth noting that female labor force participation in these urban areas and more generally in all urban areas of Turkey is still low. Participation rates of males in urban labor markets in Turkey are very similar to the European levels, but participation rates of females are less than half the levels in EU countries or the EU averages. If the experience of southern and western European countries is any indication, however, female employment should be expected to increase at later stages of urbanization and economic development. With time, with time these companies have be, become increasingly more conscious about the importance of new technology. The more successful enterprises, especially the larger companies have been attempting to produce higher technology goods by adopting more up-to-date technologies. The key question is the extent to which or how rapidly these firms will be able to move on to the production of goods with higher value added, making use of a better educated labor force with new skills and to achieve increases in labor productivity. The alternative, of course, is that the increases in labor productivity will be slow and these enterprises will continue to produce the same goods they are producing today and will be increasingly forced to compete in the international markets and even in the domestic market with the manufacturers from China and from countries with even lower wages. This, in, this question, it seems to me, is indeed the key to the future of these new industrial districts. One can offer many stories and anecdotes regarding how and to what extent this transition is taking place. My example is about industry-university cooperation. This is the kind of <coughs> dimension that I have been thinking about most often. When pressures to adopt new technologies and increase value added will lead to greater cooperation between the industrialists and the local universities, say in Gaziantep, Kayseri, Denizli, and so on. When the industrialists are ready to contribute to the development of research labs in these local universities, that will help their 
industries. And when the local industries, local universities are ready to rise to the challenge, then I think these emerging districts will have reached a new stage. But at the moment, we are not there. <coughs> when <coughs> Zia Gökalp, an influential thinker during the foundation of modern Turkey, surveyed the Ottoman Turkish landscape almost a century ago, he could not help but notice that the indigenous middle class that led the development process in most Western European countries <clears throat> was conspicuously absent in the Turkish case. What he could observe instead was large numbers of small-scale merchants and shopkeepers organized around guilds and perhaps accustomed to more to solidarity than to competition. Since <clears throat> Ziya Gekalp wrote these passages, Turkey has experienced three major waves of industrialization. In the 1930s, during the Great Depression, industrialization was laid, led by state enterprises under the development strategy then called etatism. The industrial elites then were the managers of the state enterprises. After World War II, etatism was abandoned in favor of the mixed economy model, and industrialization was led this time by the private sector, by holding companies or conglomerates located in the Istanbul region and more generally in the northwest corner of the country. The rise of new industrial centers across Anatolia in recent decades represents the third wave of industrialization and has led to the emergence of a new generation of industrial elites. What we have been observing in these Anatolian cities in recent decades is an excellent example of industrial capitalism emerging in a predominantly rural and merchant society. When you visit some of, the emerging, some of these emerging industrial districts, it is difficult not to notice that local subcultures are marked by a life ethic based on self-help and cooperation and a sense of local belonging. Perhaps unlike the earlier generation, the emerging elites in these districts are not looking at Ankara, but at their own resources to provide for the needs of their own communities. Islam and modernity coexist comfortably for these conservative and pragmatic middle classes. These industrialists have been late arrivers, both in their own regions and nationally. They are eager to establish themselves and take some power away from the earlier generation of elites. The Istanbul-based industrial elites of the earlier wave of industrialization had established in 1971 their own organization called TUSIAD. This acronym stands for Turkish businessmen and industrialists. The new generation of industrialists across Anatolia founded in 1990 MÜSİAD, short for Independent 
Businessmen Association, but sounding very much like Muslim businessmen. In its early years, Musiad supported the Islamist parties led by Nejmettin Erbakan, but the members were increasingly alienated by the inward-oriented anti-Europe rhetoric of these parties. Ever since a group of politicians led by Recep Tayyip Erdogan and Abdullah Gül broke off from Erbakan and moved to establish a new political party in 2001, the new industrialists and Musiad offered critical support for AKP to AKP for its more moderate, outward-looking, pro-Europe, pro-globalization positions. Now, I do not want to suggest that Musiad's support was the only reason for the moderation of AKP, but it was an important reason nonetheless. AKP has been more friendly to private sector and more pragmatic than any government to date and continues to be supported by large segments of the private sector. AKP certainly did not conflict with the more established industrial elites of the Istanbul region during the last five years. I would argue, however, that AKP received much-needed support across Anatolia from the elites of these emerging regional centers, whereas Tusiad membership is small in numbers and is concentrated in the Istanbul region, Musiad represents a much larger group of <clears throat> small and medium-sized enterprises across the country. Certainly, the support by Musiad counted much more at election time. The government may not have helped the emerging industrialists directly by providing them protection or large subsidies, as was the case in the 1960s and 1970s. But it has certainly looked the other way, as many of these firms were lax about paying taxes or social security benefits to their workers. In turn, the industrialists played an important role in ensuring that AKP remained committed to European integration, fiscal discipline, and more generally, policies consistent with export-oriented industrialization. I have pointed out to the rise of new industrial centers across Anatolia as one of the most important, perhaps the most important, social as well as economic development in Turkey in recent decades. I have emphasized that groups that benefited from Turkey's export drive and more generally from the outward-oriented economic policies, have been supporting AKP ever since its foundation. This emerging middle class, and these are the winners from globalization, has played an important role in the transformation and moderation of AKP and its EU orientation. Can we expect these broad trends to continue in the years ahead? And in my remaining time, I would like to consider this final question.
it seems to me we are at an important junction. And it will not be easy to maintain not only the economic, but also the political momentum of the recent years. Looking ahead to the second term of AKP and beyond, I would like to conclude with three basic observations or three preconditions that may be necessary for the continuation of these trends. My first concern is about the political and social developments. During the first five years in office, AKP has been following moderate social as well as economic policies. It is remarkable that AKP with its Islamist background has done more than any other government in bringing secular Turkey closer to the center of the EU project. Initially, AKP may have looked to European integration as a means of protection against secularists, pressures coming from the state elites. But EU integration has certainly been creating its own pressures on AKP towards embracing the secular political order. During this process, AKP has traveled a long way from its Islamist roots. Will AKP continue its journey towards a more moderate position to become, say, a Muslim Democrat party. This transformation would require a strong commitment not only to a secular political order, which is a precondition for liberal democracy, but also to further democratization and improving civil and human rights, including the right to assert one's ethnic identity. It seems to me there is nothing inevitable about achieving the goal of liberal democracy in the Turkish environment. A good deal of hard work is still necessary. At the same time, events in the last year have shown that many people in Turkey are justifiably concerned about losing the secular basis of democracy. They are concerned that AKP will adopt an increasingly conservative and religiously motivated policies. During the first five-year term, moderation and reform has served AKP very well. And one would hope that the recent 47% vote in the polls would now not lead to overconfidence or complacency. My second concern is related to the economy. Economic success is obviously a key to the continuation of the broad trends I have outlined. Economic success will help ensure the support of the emerging middle class and help AKP to maintain its moderate stance and proceed with the political and social reforms. By most criteria, the economy has done quite well since 2001. Inflation has been brought under control and interest rates have been declining. Most importantly, average or per capita incomes have risen by more than 30% since the lows experienced in 2001. 
During the same five, six-year period, Turkey has also managed to attract a lot of foreign investment, although very little of that foreign investment went to the creation of new enterprises or new jobs, even a large part of the FDI, foreign direct investment, went to the purchase of existing firms. So the, in terms of job creation, the impact of the in-capital inflows has been minimal to date. <clears throat> It appears that the economic success will not come as easily during the second term as it did during the first. The world economic environment was extraordinarily favorable during the last five years, but it may not be equally favorable in the second term. Even before the world economic events of recent months, the Turkish economy had begun to slow down the economy has not been able to generate jobs for all those who are leaving agriculture and their farms for a new life in the urban areas. The urban employment, unemployment rate has remained persistently high since 2001, despite the strong economic recovery. In many ways, it seems to me, managing the economy was more simple and a lot easier in the first term as fiscal discipline more or less took care of the recovery. However, in the years ahead, continued economic growth and new job creation will require more than fiscal discipline. Macroeconomic stabilization has come a long way, but more detailed micro-reforms will now be necessary to maintain the momentum. If I may go back to the earlier question I raised about the new industrial districts, leaving behind the labor-intensive products and moving up the ladder towards the production of higher technology goods will not happen easily. Economic policy needs to be more active and more skillful and more creative in the second term to maintain the economic momentum and success obtained during the first term. Finally, perhaps the biggest question mark concerns the European project. For Turkey, what should matter is not so much the membership per se, but the far-reaching political, economic, and institutional reforms. In this respect, the EU integration process has been a very powerful anchor for Turkey. The vision for membership has been quite crucial to the progress of the reform and democratization agenda. In many ways, the European anchor has also played an important role in the success of AKP. If the past is any guide, however, politicians in Turkey may well lose their enthusiasm for reform in the absence of such an anchor. When some European politicians make it a priority to reverse the commitment made to Turkey only a few years ago and send out negative signals regarding Turkey's future status in Europe, when the accession process slows down to a mere crawl, these tend to strengthen the position of those groups in Turkey 
who resist change. At the same time, they reduce the power and influence of those in favor of greater reform and European integration. The result has also been greater reluctance on the part of the AKP government to take the political risks necessary to maintain the momentum on the EU agenda. There can be little doubt that the weakening, if not the disappearance of the European anchor, will have serious consequences for Turkey, especially for political reforms and institutional change. For this reason, even if Turkey does not become a member in the near future, it is important for the two sides to remain engaged and the progress on agenda for membership to continue. I want to thank you all very much for your time this evening. I will now be happy to any, answer any questions you may have. Thank you, Shevkat, for that uh, very interesting overview. You've managed to weave a number of uh, aspects into your lecture, so thank you for the clarity and uh, the, the focus of your, your talk. As is conventional, we have the opportunity now of throwing it open to the audience. There are a number of colleagues around the theatre with uh, microphones, so uh, if I do point to you, please wait for the microphone to come to you. Could you uh, please try to focus on asking a question? Uh, hopefully there will be other opportunities for you making a speech, but sadly tonight is not that opportunity. Uh, so please do try to focus on the, on the question, and then we can uh, build on from there. Uh, gentleman at the back. We'll take several questions, if that's okay. Thank you very much. Uh, I mean, you didn't say conclusively, but uh, you indicated, and I assume uh, you mean that these new rising industrial centers are the driving force behind IKP. So that's the first question. I mean, do you really mean that? The second question, uh, if this is the case, I mean, the founder of IKP is the uh, previous mayor of Istanbul. And, the, and I think you give a lot of deal the support of the Musiad, uh, independent uh, businessman organization, but... I mean, the capital power that they control is, like, uh, incomparably low against the TUSIAD. So this, I mean, this cannot be the main force leading AKP into the government. So two points. One is it based, actually, in Istanbul. Secondly, the, uh, the class that pushing AKP forward cannot be uh, MUSIAD. Good. Thank you. Other questions, please. The gentleman right at the front. Evening. Um, to what extent uh, do you feel that the, the failure or perhaps the non-success of the import substitution economic policies of Turkey's, uh, um, Turkey's economic growth strategy led, in fact, to the rise of the new industrial middle classes themselves? Thank you. Uh, other questions? The 
gentleman in the blue at the very back. Sir, you remarked on the fact that Islam and modernity seem to coexist cooperatively in these new industrial districts. <coughs> I assume you remark on this because it uh, is distinctive or different. What would it be about Islam that would oppose or be a barrier to modernity and the growth in these industrial areas, and what would have ameliorated that possible conflict here? Okay, shall we take those questions uh, as a group, and then we'll come back to the, the audience uh, for more. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I will try to respond to these three in the order they appeared. Yes, I do want to suggest that uh, the industrialists of these districts have been an important force behind AKP. But I also do want to qualify that, as I did in my uh, own uh, presentation. During the last five years, AKP has been supported by all segments of the private sector in Turkey. So the fact that uh, the industrialists from these new districts have supported AKP does not mean they, that AKP has been in conflict, say, with TUSIAD. TUSIAD has also been supporting them in, in many ways that in a uh, that the economic pie has been growing and everybody has been benefiting from these, uh, this economic recovery. Um, but I would agree with you that TUSIAD has a lot more economic power because they, uh, the Istanbul region still accounts for the biggest economic enterprises, the largest parts of employment, value added, and so on. But if you remember the 1960s, 1970s, Tusiad's economic power did not translate to political power then. In fact, one, one very interesting thing about Tusiad in those years was uh, their limited political capacity. I would... Uh, argue that while these new industrialists are not commanding large enterprises, they are commanding a much greater electoral support at the election, at election time, and here lies their power, and here lies the, the key the key to the support of AKP. More political support and certainly political support much greater than their comparative economic power. And this has been, I think, the key. They bring in the votes. Tusiat has been, did not bring in the votes in, at election time. Regarding the inward-oriented industrialization, well, um, there was a lot of debate in the 1970s about the failures, shortcomings of inward-oriented industrialization. But ISI, Impost Substituting Industrialization, also had serious achievements. I think ISI was uh, 
able to provide a reasonably diversified industrial base for Turkey on the basis of which we could see this phenomenal rise in exports in the 1980s and beyond. So there are some achievements. I think it's often fashionable to put down in ISI these inward-oriented policies, especially in the present day. But ISI did achieve a good deal of industrialization for Turkey in the early stages. But I think in the 1970s, because of the political instability, political crises, ISI was allowed to deteriorate and collapse. And I think that was not so much the problem with ISI, but the, because of the political problems. And uh, so, as a result, ISI was much easily discredited and on the basis of which uh, the, um, the export-oriented policies were established. And yes, uh, once you move on to the uh, new era, these new industrial centers found it easier to take advantage of low wages to, and in some cases, the, for example, the, their geographical location to push towards the export markets. So I wouldn't want to play, play up the failures of ISI um, without recognizing its achievements. The third question, would somebody, would... Is that the, uh, why would we assume that Islam yes. was antagonistic to yeah. morality? I think uh, the, the, the so-called co conflict between Islam and capitalism is more a perception than a reality. When you do not have success, when you do not have economic development, and then I think people think that there is something inherently uh, problematic about the Islamic societies. But uh, I think economic development, when, as it unfolds, and I would say here the political uh, uh, structures are the key, then you find that that, that conflict is not, is not really there. I think in this case, in the case of these industrial districts, we see that once success arrives, uh, that those conflicts that people expected are not taking place. And uh, I, am, uh, I am often thinking in terms of Weber, for example, who, uh, as a sociologist who first brought up the argument that capitalism was really most suitable for the Protestants. Okay? And this argument has been repeated often in the 19th century, early 20th century. But in the last half century, we have seen capitalism flourish in very different environments, in societies by the, dominated by many other religions. And more recently in East Asia, South Asia. So I think the last half century 
in that regard has proven Weber wrong, and I think uh, um, the same is true equally with the Islamic societies. Thank you. Another round of uh, questions. Can we take uh, the gentleman in the blue first here? When we have a look at the first roots of AKP party in 1970, we see Mehmet Zahid Kotko and then its Milli Nizam Partisi. And then obviously it was a very mystical uh, party and then hardcore, a small segment of the religious party. And then since then, when we have a look at the journey, uh, then it's been watered down step by step, gradually. First of all, Milli Nizam Partisi was shut down, and then later on, Milli Seramet Partisi shut down, Refah Partisi, Welfare Partisi shut down, and uh, Fazilet and all those shut down. And all, AKP is the most loose structure uh, of this uh, tendency. And of course, they have to make so many concessions from their maximal religious identity and agenda if really that kind of agenda really exists. And uh, now can we do, my question is actually, can we see kind of a break point actually, especially regarding for the hardcore Islamists, they heavily invested and they do expect so much from this party. Then do we see very major and dramatic uh, shift uh, from AKP, kind of a breakdown? Or as we see in the latest discourse of uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan in Spain about headscarf issue, it's not, uh, you know, uh, uh, uh, uh, for instance, I mean, it's a symbolic issue. It doesn't make any difference, actually, so it should not be refuted, basically. Or his latest remarks for Gaza, Gaza crisis, for instance, and it was very anti-Israel uh, in that sense. So do you take those individual remarks of Recep Tayyip Erdogan, or do you really see AKP's kind of creating a, a sympathy uh, against uh, Americanization, uh, anti-Israel, uh, you know, very much on purpose, or this is just seeking a kind of popularity in personal level, but not in a collective manner. Thank you. Uh, other questions? The gentleman with the blue tie. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> I would like to uh, uh, question, it's a more technical question. Uh, the Turkey is lagging behind the knowledge transforming its economy into knowledge economy. And uh, uh, therefore, the local value addition uh, is under pressure, as you uh, rightfully pointed out. What are the current trends on that, uh, especially with the pressure, the, the import, cheap imports, labor-intensive imports, and more uh, automated imports coming uh, into the country? I particularly noticed uh, recently read an article that 12, uh, a television manufacturer, the Turkish leading, with 12 million uh, television manufacturer uh, per year and exported uh, mostly. Uh, for example, they were very successful when there was a CRT and discrete components and all that. Now there's an LCD and single chip. So it will be interesting to correlate the export versus sort of uh, tied imports and the trends on that. Okay, good, thanks. Um, the gentleman in the black. Thank you and good evening. Um, as far as I can grasp from your presentation, you argue that the success of AKP is mostly dependent on the 
Anatolian industrialists and partially Istanbul-oriented ones too. Um, and you mentioned the associations like Musiad and Tusiyad. Uh, but I think that such as associations only reflect the intentions of and desires of the managerial classes of the industrialists. And AKP, in order to meet these demands of uh, such industrialists, they worsen the conditions of industrial workers and traditional farmers, uh, which I think constitute the most part of the Turkey's population by, uh, as you said, by worsening the income levels and uh, decreasing their uh, social security conditions and other things. So how could you explain this situation? Okay, yes. thank you. Can we, we'll come back for another group of questions in a moment. Okay. Well, um, let me begin with the question on uh, your question. My one argument about IK, AKP is that when you compare it with the earliest Islamist parties, they are much, they have pursued much more moderate policies. I do not think this is a facade. I do not think this is a conspiracy that they are at any moment going to go back to the earlier uh, policies and positions of the Erbakan-led uh, Islamist parties. One source of this moderation is that Yes, the Turkish state has been very tough on the Erbakan-led parties, and they have consistently closed down these earlier generation of parties for one reason or another, but the reasons were all related to their political stances. So in some ways, the politicians, this new generation of politicians, Erdogan, Gül, and others, they said, well, they said, we've if we want to be successful and long-lasting in politics, we have to change our positions. We have to moderate our positions. So in this respect, um, surviving in that harsh, in that respect, the harsh political environment of Turkey was one reason that they have changed their policies. But in my talk, I have pointed out to another important reason for the moderation of IKP, and that is related to the rise of this new middle class, of these, the rise of industry, which is globally oriented. This, these industrialists do not like anymore the rhetoric of joining the Islamic world. They do not want, they do not enjoy the rhetoric of national industry. They do not want the earlier style populist policies of the government. They want to remain well connected to global events, to global, uh, the, the world economy. And they see that more than half of their exports are going to the EU markets. 
So they want to remain well connected. I think this is my emphasis. Obviously, the political argument about the state repression of the uh, Islamist parties are important, but now this emerging middle class is, I would argue, firmly behind these more moderate policies. So I I do not expect these moderate policies to disappear overnight. However, if things begin to go wrong, if there is economic failure, if if the EU anchor disappears and this, this successful trajectory is broken, then, then we do not know. But as long as the economic success continues, government Turkey continues on, on with the European path, I do not expect the, these moderate, moderate policies to change and the moderate positions to change. About the knowledge economy, this is is a a very important question, and I do not have simple answers. When we look at Turkey's economic development over the last uh, half a century, say, since World War II, we find that Turkey, in terms of industrialization, economic growth, has done a bit better than world averages, has done a bit better in terms of per capita income growth, a bit better than averages for developing countries, but Turkey is not one of those miracle cases. Not amongst the worst, but certainly not amongst the best either. And uh, rather than provide to you some more technical sector-specific answers. I would argue that the main shortcomings in Turkey have been institutional and macroeconomic. I think when you look at the last half a century, there have been too much political instability in Turkey. In the earlier era, it was the military coups, and then later populist economic cycles, and then um, uh, macroeconomic instability. That, of course, does not create an environment conducive to the kinds of technological changes that you you hope hope to see. I would... um, also emphasize that the, the Turkish labor force is, could be a lot better educated. The skill la- levels of the Turkish labor force is not very high. You have in Turkey today very well-educated elites, but when you look at the big numbers, Turkish education system has not been very successful. Um, Turkish education system is still emphasizing numbers to provide schooling for the big numbers, and it's only recently that Turkish economic system has been providing schooling for all the, say, the school age kids. But what about quality? After all, for the kinds of things you talk about, the quality of education has now, should now become more important than the quantity of the schools and the teachers and the classrooms. 
And I think these, these three things, macroeconomic environment, institutions, the institutional changes have been very limited. I think the, in the institutional area, uh, only recently, in the, I think the institutional environment, which econ economic theory, economists now pay a lot so much attention to only in the last few years, the Turkish institutional in, uh, environment is beginning to improve. So, I, th I, am, I am aware that I'm providing a general answer, but I think these are the most important. Kevin, when I come to the third question now, I have to seek help <laughs> from you again. Um, it was uh, concerning the success of the party. You focused on the manufacturing centers and the manufacturing middle class. Uh, Turkey is predominantly uh, yes. has large numbers of farmers. What about the farm yes. support? Well, um, I have pointed out that in the, in the emerging industrial districts, these industrialists did not pay um, high wages, did not pay uh, health care benefits, and did not pay, pay uh, um, retirement benefits, and so on and so forth. And the government looked the other way. But it is also true that over the last five years, average incomes in Turkey have increased by 30%. So, uh, it, it is, a, even if these, the gains from this, in, in, in economic gains, in the, from the economic recovery in the last five years are unequally distributed, broad segments of the population are receiving benefits. And, uh, and, and look at the way these people are voting. If the industrial workers and the unemployment and, ev and, and everybody else is suffering in Turkey, then you wouldn't expect 47% of the electorate to be voting for AKP. I think this economic recovery has been beneficial for them. Um, and certainly when what AKP did do or what AKP perhaps uh, by not interfering in the economy in these first five years managed to achieve stands in sharp contrast to what the earlier generation of the more secular political parties did do and they by and large crashed the economy to ground. Thank you. Let's have another round of uh, questions. The gentleman here, the very front. Thank you very much, Kevin. Um, I would like to ask you, according to your opinion, what is the role? Uh, no, certainly, and without any doubt, the Erdogan government did a lot of reforms in the Turkish uh, establishment, uh, institutional, they have economic growth, they succeed financially and all that stuff. But I would like to ask you, what is the role of the military Turkish establishment, which has deep roots on the Turkish state? Is that an obstacle on the way to democratization, etc., etc., or not? Thank you. Uh, 
to the question at the very, very back. Uh, I thought it was time to give you some exercise. Um, you point out that um, the fact that uh, Turkey is exporting 50% of its value to Europe is an important contributing factor in its move towards, um, towards a better uh, political situation. Um, do you think that if, the, if this balance changes, let's, see that, let, let's say that the emerging markets shift Turkey from Europe to Asia, how will this affect the way Turkey is going? Do you think the government will still continue uh, with its reforms if, if the European influence in, this, in these terms decreases? Good, thanks. Uh, gentlemen here today. I was wondering to what extent it will be the right interpretation uh, to tie the rise of um, the new industrial elites and centers to that of the AKP. As you know, the concept of Anatolian tigers um, has been around for years, and they may have well supported the motherland party under uh, Turgut Özal then as well, although the changing structure of the share of um, exports um, compared to the GDP and the share of manufacturers in total exports. That's my first question. I, I mean, uh, I wonder if it's, uh, uh, it's kind of an economist interpretation of the IK, uh, AKP's rise rather than political factors behind it. And the second question is, uh, you mentioned in the end of your speech that it's uh, crucial for both the EU and Turkey to remain engaged in the uh, accession, uh, accession process. Uh, but um, any such uh, process cannot be maintained without public support, and um, that support is lacking in the EU and eroding in Turkey. So I was wondering what your suggestion would be on that issue in terms of keeping that uh, momentum going. Thank you. Nice, easy questions. Uh, okay. You expect nice, easy answers? Um, complicated and stimulating one. Sure, sure. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I think Turkish military's role in Turkish politics is a difficult one, but perhaps also an exaggerated one. I would say that the Turkish military has played a, a boat and in some ways a positive role in, say, the moderation of the Islamist parties. And as I pointed out, I think Turkish military, by insisting on, a, on their strict interpretation of secularism, has enforced the Islamist parties to come to a more moderate position. So I would consider that as a, as a and in, as, as a contribution, because it is one can plausibly argue that uh, in the absence of such an insistence, uh, it may not have been possible to bring these Islamist parties more to the center. At the same time, um, that uh, 
not only the military, but also inside the Turkish state apparatus, the persistence of various groups, what is often called the deep state, is creating a lot, a lot of political problems and has been creating uh, political problems. And uh, I, would, I would say that Turkey is not unique in this respect, but it's certainly Turkey and AKP, AKP, as well as the previous governments, needs to weed out and eliminate and make the Turkish state more transparent and open and broaden the Turkish democracy more forcefully. There is still ways to go. And I, my, again, I would argue that economic success would make it easier to make progress on the, in this respect. Okay? And Turkey has some ways to go. But in the end, when you look at the events that military created a lot of noise, say in the past year, okay? a lot of noise, a lot of threats, but the elections went on. AKP won resoundingly, and then AKP put up this, the, the candidate, which was apparently opposed by the military and uh, certain segments of the Turkish population, and this man was elected president. So you can see that there is a lot of rhetoric, but when it comes to it, a lot of things are also getting done. And so... I agree that it's a thorn, it's a problem for further democratization, but there is also a tendency, to, I think, to exaggerate how powerful the military is in Turkish politics. If they were really that powerful, if they paid some, would, would Abdullah Gül be the president today? Um, your question about Turkey's exports. Um, Europe has played to date a very important role as an outlet for Turkey's exports. And I suspect that Asia can never play that role. Because uh, uh, when you look at the experience over the last half century of developing economies, of lower income economies, uh, you find that the developing economies have not been very successful in developing links amongst each other. The most dynamic regional cooperation has been between developing and developed economies, not within developing economies. If export markets of developing countries could be sufficient to, for economic development, then, say, South America, Latin America, would have been a very dynamic region. In fact, it did not happen. Similarly for many Middle East and African regions, partnership, cooperation within developing countries, between developing countries, are never sufficient. One, of course, one important difference in East Asia was the presence of a very technologically dynamic 
country of Japan, and that played an important role. Similarly, Turkey needs EU markets, and I don't think Asian markets can ever replace EU markets. Certainly, there was a lot of talk in the 1990s about Central Asian markets, but that turned out to be a mirage. You're interested me about uh, question three again, aren't you? It's that time of... <laughs> um, gentleman asked uh, two questions. Uh, you give so much emphasis to the economic factors behind uh, the rise of uh, AKP. Uh, what about the political? Yeah. And the second aspect was that you say that it's crucial for Turkey to have an anchor with the European Union. Uh, the public increasingly don't seem to like yeah. the anchor. My argument was not an economic argument alone. My argument is also a political argument. I began with some economic trends about exports, the rising importance of manufacturers in exports, and so on. But then I pointed out to a social political phenomena, the rise of a new class. And I, th I said it's not just the economic trends, but the rise of an economic of this class and and by that also I am talking about a new world view and new mentalities a new willingness a new willingness to come to, to come to terms with globalizing world I think these are all social political uh, and cultural developments that uh, play the role in the moderation of the Islamic political movements in Turkey. So I'm, I, I'm an economic historian, proud of it, but I don't think my argument <laughs> was an economic argument alone. <clears throat> About uh, Europe and Turkey in the years ahead, I think um, it, is, it will not be an easy period. Um, because uh, A, in Europe, there is always gains for politicians to play it up against Turkey, that politicians can make a career, and under the current circumstances, they can make successful careers for themselves by ganging up on Turkey. And, uh, um, but there are also others in Europe who think that uh, for long-term interests of Europe, it is important to remain engaged with Europe and that Turkey has a lot to contribute to Europe over the long term. And uh, I am hoping that this part of Europe will make sure that Europe's future uh, relations with Turkey are not left to those only to those politicians. I, we don't need to see membership for Turkey in the next five years, in the next, perhaps not even in the ten years. But I think it is important for the European anchor to remain in place. It is important for this process not to be derailed. Okay. And... Uh, the, it is all, this is also important inside Turkey, uh, and for reasons I pointed out. Uh, 
It is important for the different groups and the motivation of different groups in Turkey. It's also important for governments in Turkey. Uh, <clears throat> governments look at the polls, um, and governments also, right at this current environment, governments uh, may find it expedient not to risk political capital, not to... Uh, throw away political cap capital if they think that if they take a few steps towards Europe and that they will be spurned, that that, that few steps will not be met back by, uh, by, uh, uh, by some uh, corresponding uh, initiative on the European side. So um, it may not, uh, I may not uh, uh, it may not sound very ambitious to say the best thing would be to make sure that the, the, the, this train remains on course or is not derailed, but I think that's, that's, that's very important because I feel in the longer term uh, European public opinion will change again. And again, I, if you allow me to make an economic argument, I would say that Europe needs a bit of economic success right now, just as Germany and France and many European countries were so eager to invite Turkish workers in the 1960s because Europe was, in fact, so successful economically and so self-confident at that time. A little bit of economic success in Europe would make Europe more confident in its ability to deal with different groups, and in this respect, in its ability to absorb, economically absorb Turkey. And that doesn't necessarily mean Turkish workers, because studies, uh, well, that's a, it's an aside, but certainly uh, we're, I'm not talking about Turkish workers, but I'm talking about the economic absorption of Turkey and the uh, a little bit of economic success would do Europe very good in this respect. Great. I see that the clock is uh, beating us. Shevkat, um, I've enjoyed it very much, and thank you for your, uh, the clarity of the lecture and the uh, themes you've uh, weaved together, and thank you for uh, answering so many different uh, questions. So uh, I've learned a lot, and uh, I think we've all uh, enjoyed it. Thank you to Shevkat Pamuk. Thank you.